Good morning, everyone. Uh, let's uh, take a little bit of time and pray once more before we open the family book together. Let's pray. Lord, your word is a light to our path and a lamp to our feet. Indeed, without your word, Lord, we are in darkness. You give us, Lord, revelation concerning yourself, concerning ourselves, concerning your world, uh, its past, present, and future. We thank you for this treasure that is your word. Uh, Help us this week not to leave it laying in the dust, but to open it, make it dog-eared, highlight it, circle things in it, whatever we do. Father, we pray that as your people here in this community, that you would continue to grow us by your word. And now, Lord, as we open it again, give us alertness to the things that you have for us. Uh, Help me as I deliver this message as a weak vessel, uh, that it's all about your glory and your power, Lord, being at work through your word. Help me to decrease as you increase now, in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. Over the course of my now 11 years of pastoral ministry, uh, I've run across several uh, different people along the way who have been prone to criticize the church of Jesus Christ. Now, the kind of people I'm talking about are never happy, never settled with the church as it is with all its warts and dysfunction and messiness. Instead, they're always hammering away, quick to voice their opinion of what they think the church should be or could be or needs to be. And admittedly, I have been like this at times. Certainly, I don't stand here this morning pretending that I have not been guilty of the same sort of tendency that I've just described. Well, years ago, I ran across a few sentences in the book, Life Together, uh, written about 75 years ago by the German pastor and theologian Dietrich Bonhoeffer, sentences that really, I would say, grabbed me and sort of stopped me in my tracks uh, concerning that tendency to be constantly critical of the church. I want you to listen to this quote from Bonhoeffer and really consider it with me. Bonhoeffer wrote, He who loves his or her dream of a community more than the community itself becomes a destroyer of the latter. That is, he or she becomes a, a destroyer of the community itself even though his or her personal intentions may be ever so honest and earnest and sacrificial. Bonhoeffer continued, The man who fashions a visionary ideal of community, and we could add woman there as well, the woman who fashions a visionary ideal of community, or the man, demands that it be realized by God, by others, and by himself. He enters the community of Christians with his demands, sets up his own law, and judges the brethren and God himself accordingly. 
He stands adamant, a living reproach to all others in the circle of the brethren. He acts as if he is the creator of the Christian community, as if his dream binds men together. When things do not go his way, he calls the effort a failure. When his ideal picture is destroyed, he sees the community going to smash. So he becomes first an accuser of his brethren, then an accuser of God, and finally the despairing accuser of himself. Wow. (laughs) What a challenging quote that is, a challenge to us to love the actual community called the church more than we love our ideal or dream for the community. This morning, our passage in 1 Peter is about the glory and the beauty of the blood-bought, warts-and-all community called the church. Our passage is about the staggering nature and the staggering future that God has planned for his church. And my hope is that as we walk through this next section of 1 Peter, that the Holy Spirit would help us, would help us to become less critical, if that's our tendency, less critical of the church, and that we would show more love toward the church as it is, that that we would be helped this morning to see the church from his perspective instead of our own. Peter begins our passage with the assumption that we are coming before the head of the church regularly, seeking Jesus Christ, seeking him in his word, growing up in him. Peter says... As you come to him. Do you see the assumption there? As you come to him. This past week, did you come to him? Did you spend quality time with the risen Jesus, head of the church? Will you jealously guard time this week to do that? As you come to him, the living stone. Now notice Peter calls Jesus the living stone here in verse 4. First of all, Jesus is living, though he once was dead. Jesus has been raised by God. He is living right now. Secondly, Jesus is called the stone, the living, resurrected stone. Psalm 118 and Isaiah chapter 8 and Isaiah 28 We're all three places in the Old Testament where phrases like the stone the builders rejected and stone of offense and foundation stone, all those phrases had been used in those Old Testament passages. And Jesus, in Matthew 21 and Mark 12 and Luke 20, applied that Old Testament stone imagery that was used in the Old Testament, he applied it to himself. And so in 1 Peter 2.4, Peter identifies the risen Jesus as the living stone. Peter had been with Jesus, and Peter knew that Jesus had applied that imagery to himself. Jesus is the living stone. Now, why stone? 
Well, as we're going to see as we walk through this, it's a glorious passage. What Peter is talking about in the passage is the cornerstone. That giant, precious, square stone that would be laid down first as one was building a temple. Edmund Clowney helps us get the picture here. Clowney says, when one built a temple, the cornerstone of the foundation would be the first stone to be put in place. Since both the angle of the walls and the level of the stone courses would be extended from it, the cornerstone must be square and true. Friends, it wouldn't be too much to say that the entire temple structure depended on the trueness and the solidity of the cornerstone. The cornerstone was essential to the integrity of the rest of the whole building. Christ, says Peter, is the living stone who is, notice, rejected by men. Lord have mercy. Rejected by men, but chosen by God and precious to him. The living cornerstone of God's new temple is rejected by men. People who think they are working on God's building, they come around and they inspect the chosen cornerstone of God, Jesus Christ, and they reject him. They find fault with him. They find him unfit to build on. They discard him. And for a good idea of what this rejection of Jesus the cornerstone looked like in its most wicked form, we go to Acts 4.27, where Herod, Pilate, the Gentiles, and the peoples of Israel were gathered, it says, against, against, God's holy servant Jesus. They conspired together in their rejection of the cornerstone. They conspired together to nail the cornerstone to the cross. The cornerstone was rejected by men, says Peter. Friends, Peter's readers, we remember, facing themselves, facing rejection in their society because of their commitment to the cornerstone, as they read this, they would find some solace from the fact that their Lord, the cornerstone himself, was rejected. And servants are not above their master. If we are facing rejection at some level of our lives because of our trust in Jesus Christ, because of our witness for Jesus Christ, we can take solace in the fact that Jesus himself knew rejection. Amen? Again, John 15, 20, we've read it many times over the past few weeks. Jesus Christ says to us this morning, remember what I told you. A servant is not greater than his master. If they persecuted me, they will persecute you also. Rejected by men. But the flip side, says Peter, the glorious flip side, 
is that the cornerstone Jesus was chosen by God and precious to him. And here we think, don't we, of the pleasure that God expressed in his cornerstone in a place like Mark 1.11. The father said to the son from heaven, you, 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 you are my beloved son, 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 son. Imagine how it must have reverberated. With you I am well pleased. Yes. Jesus is the Father's servant in whom the Father's soul delights. Isaiah 42.1 So God's estimate of the cornerstone was the stone is perfectly, utterly true. And right and good and beautiful and precious. In startling contrast to the world's rejection of Jesus. Let's go to verse 5. Now we began today with the exhortation to love the church more than we are critical of the church. Notice now the exalted, glorious way that God talks of his church now in verse 5. He says, You also... Turn to your neighbor and say, He's talking to you. Yeah, he's talking to us. He's talking to the church. He says, you also, listen, you also, like living stones, are being built into a spiritual house. Now, what is your picture of the church? Is the church this building that we sit in right now? Is this building on Earnscliff Avenue the house of God? Or are we the house of God? According to Peter, in this fifth verse of chapter 2, we, the people of God, are the building or the temple or the house of God that is under construction. We need to switch our paradigm here, don't we? You also, people like living stones, living stones are being built into a spiritual house. Now this is astounding, folks. First of all, we have to notice a bunch of things here. Notice first of all the intimate, close, very organic connection between Christ, the living stone, verse 4, and his people who are like living stones in verse 5. Do you notice the connection? The people are like their master. Amen? We are living, as Peter says here, in the sense that as born-again believers, we have been enlivened in Christ through his resurrection, 1 Peter 1.3. And we are living stones. That is, listen carefully, we are all important pieces of a grand and glorious temple 
that God is building, we are living stones who rest on and depend on and are connected to the living stone himself, the cornerstone, Jesus Christ. Peter says that we are being built into a, what kind of house? Spiritual house. The church is a spiritual house. It's not a physical bricks and mortar kind of a thing. It is a spiritual house. Why? Well, because, as Tom Schreiner has put it, the true church is animated and indwelt by the Holy Spirit. Hence, spiritual house. And, of course, the word house was used many times in the Old Testament of the church as God's spiritual house or God's temple. What was the main idea, the main idea concerning the old physical temple in Jerusalem. The main idea of the physical temple was God's presence. God's presence in 3. You are now the temple of God. God's part. What is your estimation of the church? Do you think of the church as the place of almighty God's presence on earth? Or would you rather be critical of the church with your own ideas in view? Very carefully, look at it with me again, that the living stones, the people of the church, are not scattered haphazardly, some unorganized structure that makes no sense. No, no. Like living stones, we are being built into what? A single, unified, beautiful, ordered, glorious spiritual house. Do you see this? The point is, God is after a single unit. One unified structure, though made up as it is, of diverse parts. Are you a living stone this morning? If you're a believer, you should say, Amen, I am. As a living stone, you are ordered in the design of God's house. You have a place in God's house that can only be filled by you. But yet, you are related in the structure to the other living stones around you. You are part of a community of believers. You have a definite relationship to the other living stones that are around you. Folks, we need to understand this morning, God is a workman working on this beautiful, wondrous, amazing house, and you and I are part of it. Let us be very hesitant to engage in regular, constant dissatisfaction, criticism of this glorious, living, eternal edifice that God is building. Scott McKnight, in his commentary on 1 Peter, writes this. He says, someday this church, listen folks, someday this church will be so full of God's glory and so like the glory of Christ that we ought to pause before we start hammering away at its structures and substructures. He says, we need to repent. I know that's an unpopular word. We need to repent from a state of critical evaluation of the church, which Christ has bought 
and for which God has planned a great future. Amen. Amen. Verse 5 continued. Like living stones, we are being built into a spiritual house to be a holy priesthood, says Peter, offering spiritual sacrifices acceptable to God through Jesus Christ. Not, now note, note very well here that not only are we the building that God is construct, constructing, we are also the priests who minister inside the building. We're the building and we're the priests. Isn't the New Testament great? We are a holy priesthood offering spiritual sacrifices. Now priests in the old physical temple in Jerusalem had several responsibilities. One thing they did regularly was to replace the bread and light the candles and light the incense in the temple. Why? Because God dwelt there in the temple. The temple, in effect, was like God's living room. And the priests acted as butlers to God. They cleaned up the place, ordered the place, made sure that God's space was comfortable and livable. As a holy priesthood, folks, listen to me carefully. We are called a holy priesthood here in 1 Peter. As a holy priesthood, you and I are to do the same. We are to keep God's living room, that is, us, clean. We are now God's living room, and we are to keep that living room spick and span. We are to make efforts in the power that he supplies to ensure that God's living space is comfortable and livable. I'm talking to men now. It may mean for you that you put fences up around technology if you are tempted by pornography just as one ramification of this. Peter says that the church is a holy priesthood that offers spiritual sacrifices acceptable to God through Jesus Christ. Spiritual sacrifices. Now, obviously, as a holy priesthood, we don't ever come into the Snowden sanctuary bringing rams or goats, at least I haven't seen that yet, uh, to offer as blood sacrifices because the sacrificial death of Jesus has forever abolished the need for such sacrifices. Instead of blood sacrifices, we offer what Peter calls the spiritual sacrifices. That is, we offer the sacrifice of thanksgiving for the atoning death of Jesus Christ. With Hebrews 13.15 in view, we offer up a sacrifice of praise to God, that is, the fruit of lips that acknowledge his name. With Romans 12.1 in view, we present our bodies, that is, ourselves, as living sacrifices, holy and acceptable to God, which is our spiritual worship. And the posture, let's talk about the posture we take in offering such spiritual sacrifices. The posture is well described in a place like Psalm 51, 17. We offer such sacrifice in our weakness. 
Say hello, somebody. With a broken spirit, a broken and contrite heart. With Micah 6 in view, we walk humbly as we offer up our spiritual sacrifice. That's the posture. That's the posture. Let's keep going. 1 Peter 2.6. So now Peter is going to draw on a bunch of Old Testament texts here. So hang on to your hats. First one is Isaiah 28, verse 16. Peter says, For in Scripture, now in Peter's day, Scripture was the Old Testament because the New Testament hadn't come into being at the time when Peter wrote this letter. So his Scripture is the Hebrew Bible, the Old Testament. For in Scripture, it says, and then he quotes Isaiah 28, 16. See, I lay a stone in Zion, a chosen and precious cornerstone. There's the word. And the one who trusts in him will never be put to shame. Peter is connecting that ancient prophecy of Isaiah 28, 16 with Jesus, the cornerstone. Peter is saying that the stone that God promised to lay in Zion was fulfilled in the person of Jesus Christ. Jesus is the chosen and precious cornerstone who Isaiah had prophesied hundreds of years before Jesus came to earth. And if you're a person who trusts in Jesus, notice, you will never be put to shame. Now, it's interesting, Isaiah 28. That chapter of Scripture has this alternating current in it of hope for the future, but also condemnation, harsh condemnation, of the religious atmosphere of Isaiah's day. The priests and prophets of Isaiah's day were a mess. Drunk with beer and wine, according to Isaiah 28, 7, scoffing at their duties, scoffing at God. God had had quite enough and promised in that context to make a new building in Jerusalem, a new house. See, I lay a stone in Zion, a tested stone, a precious cornerstone for a sure foundation. The one who trusts will never be dismayed. Peter says in 1 Peter 2, Jesus is the cornerstone. Amen? The Nazarene is the foundation stone of God's building. Verse 7. Now to you who believe this stone is precious, or better rendered from the Greek, is the English Standard Version, which says, so the honor is for you who believe. That's a better rendering from the Greek. Peter has just quoted the last part of Isaiah 28.16. The one who trusts in him will never be put to shame. And then right after shame, Peter talks about honor. So the honor is for you who believe. In other words, the no shame that Isaiah talked about is for you, church. Yours is the honor if you trust in Jesus Christ. And for Peter's readers... This no shame but rather honor concept was very important. Listen to the words of a commentator named J.H. Eliot. He said this, Peter's readers were receiving a barrage of verbal abuse 
designed to demean, discredit, and shame the believers as social and moral deviants. Boy, doesn't this sound contemporary? Who endangered the common good. The procedure of public shaming, he says, was employed as a means of social control with the aim of pressuring the minority community, boy, this sounds contemporary, pressuring the minority community to conform to conventional values and standards of conduct. Peter says, trust Jesus and the only honor that counts, honor before God, is yours. Back in verse 4, Jesus was honored by the Father. Jesus was chosen and precious to the Father. Now in verse 7, believers, you and I, share in that honor that was bestowed on Jesus Christ. We are honored, friends, never put to shame for trusting Jesus. Did you know, believer, that in believing, honor is yours before God? Did you know that? So the honor is for you who believe, but... Now, whenever we see the word but in Scripture, there's a turning point. But, to those who do not believe, and then Peter quotes the Old Testament again, he quotes Psalm 118.22, he says, The stone the builders rejected has become not the capstone as it's rendered in, the, in, the, in our, our older version of the NIV, but more likely the stone that the builders rejected has become the cornerstone, the very same cornerstone that Peter has already been talking about in this passage. See, a capstone went on the top of a structure, usually sort of embedded in an archway. In verse 8, Peter is going to talk about stumbling over the stone. Now, I don't know about you, but I I just picture it. I think it would be difficult to stumble over a capstone up above. Therefore, probably what Peter intended here in the Greek is cornerstone, as the ESV has it, and actually as the updated NIV has it, the 2011 NIV. Cornerstone. For unbelievers, for unbelievers who reject the stone. Lo and behold, God has made him, has made Jesus the rejected one, the very cornerstone of his new everlasting building that he has been making. God has rejected the builder's rejection of the stone and has made the stone the cornerstone of his eternal Building. Verse 8, Peter continues with the Old Testament fireworks. Now he quotes Isaiah 8.14 to say that Jesus is a stone that causes men to stumble and a rock that makes them fall. Now what happens when you stumble or fall over a rock? Usually, not that I'm speaking from experience or anything, but you get hurt. You get hurt. So note the equation that Peter is presenting in this part of Scripture, that he's presenting very clearly in these verses, and he's presenting this equation to the entire range of human persons everywhere at all times in human history. 
the equation that Peter is giving us here in these verses is Christ the stone, listen, is like a dividing line for every single person. Salvation is found only in Jesus. Some will believe and rest on the stone and become living stones themselves. Others will disbelieve, stumble over him, and come to harm. Those who disbelieve, says Peter, stumble because they disobey the message. That is, they stumble because they turn away from and disregard the message of salvation in Jesus Christ, which, says Peter, now listen, is also what they were destined for. Woe. They stumble because they disobey the message, which is also what they were destined for. Now, folks, there's no use trying to skate around what Peter says here or use interpretive acrobatics to try and soften what is just simply a hard statement. Here in scripture, they stumble because they disobey the message, which is also what they were destined for. It's right there in your Bible. Unbelieving people, says Peter, were destined for something. Who does the destining? Well, this is a divine passive in the Greek. In the context, God does the destining. Look closely at the verse with me. Either the unbelievers here are destined by God to stumble over the stone, or the unbelievers are destined by God to disobey the message, or both. It's actually hard to make a decisive call here on whether the destining of God is a destining to just stumbling or a destining to just disobeying, or a destining to both. Well, somebody says, either way, doesn't this make God look somewhat mean? Destining certain people to stumble and or disobey. Where, where is the room for free will? If God destines people either for stumbling over Jesus or for disobeying the gospel, then how can those people be held responsible for their stumbling and or disobedience? They didn't choose it. God did. I said this was a hard statement, didn't I? But yet here it is in our Bibles. Some people are destined by God either to stumble over Jesus or disobey the gospel or both. Now let me come alongside you as a fellow struggler as we try this is what happens when you preach the whole counsel of God. You kind of, <laughs> I was wrestling this week. Let me let me come alongside you as we try to reconcile in our Greek influenced brains, okay? The seemingly opposed ideas of human free will on one hand 
and God's sovereign control of all things. On the other hand, I want to say just a few things, and then we need to move on for the sake of time. First, Scripture, listen, Scripture does teach God's sovereign control over everything. From the outcome of rolling dice, Proverbs 16.33, to the decisions made by world rulers, Proverbs 21.1, to the crucifixion of his son, Acts 4.27 and 28, everything that happens in this world is within the sovereign grasp and control of God. And so Peter can say in our text that God destined certain people to stumble and or disobey. But secondly, on the other hand, Scripture does teach also, does it not, that human beings make real choices, real actual decisions. And if people make evil decisions... God holds them to account for those evil decisions, even though he is sovereign over everything. This is the Hebrew way of thinking, folks. They just lay these tensions in Scripture and say, yeah, free will, uh uh-huh. God's sovereign over everything, yep. And we don't like it. Because we like to have everything sorted out in neat and tidy boxes, either-or sort of thinking post-enlightenment thinking that, we're all, that we all have. We can't get around it. Scripture teaches that God is sovereign over all things, yet it also teaches that people are responsible if they act in evil ways they, that they're guilty of, they are held to account. The best I can do here with the tail end of 1 Peter 2.8 is to say that while God destines unbelievers to stumble over Jesus and or disobey the gospel, still... Those unbelievers have made real choices to do so that have come from their hearts and for which God will hold them accountable. We must hasten on. Verse 9, listen again to the honor that God bestows on his church here. He says to us, he says to the church, you church are a chosen people Do you understand yourself that way? A chosen people. He's quoting from Isaiah 43.20, where the chosen people were specifically the descendants of Abraham. But now in the context of Peter, the phrase chosen people applies amazingly to the church made up as it is of both Jews and Gentiles. We, the church, are a chosen people, a royal priesthood and the phrase royal priesthood comes from exodus 19:6, where the hebrew people standing at mount sinai just before god pronounced his law were called a royal priesthood peter here at verse 9 is applying this phrase to the church jews and gentiles who believe in jesus christ we are the ones priests who consecrate ourselves to God, as priests should, who offer spiritual sacrifices to God, like priests should, and we are the ones, church, who are sent on mission to mediate, like priests should, between God and the world around us. 
We are to understand ourselves as go-betweens in this world. Go-betweens between God and a lost world, a royal priesthood. Children of the king who bring God to the world and the world to God. Amen? Peter says further here that the church is a holy nation. Again, he's getting that straight out of Exodus 19.6, where the Hebrews were being formed into God's holy nation, set apart for his service amongst the nations. Peter takes holy nation and he applies it to the church. The church made up, listen to this, made up as it is of Jews who believe, Gentiles who believe, red, brown, yellow, black, white, spread out as we are, without borders, across the globe. We are God's holy nation. We don't have borders, yet we're God's holy nation. Did you know you have dual citizenship? Peter continues, the church is a people belonging to God, just as Israel had been a special possession to God in in Exodus 19.5. And then notice next, folks, and this is crucially important for us to see. Peter gives us the purpose of the church. You're wondering what the purpose of the church is? What's the purpose of Snowden Baptist Church? What's the purpose of the church? He gives us the purpose. Note this carefully. He says that we are a chosen people, a royal priesthood, a holy nation, a people belonging to God, that you may do what? That you may declare the praises of him who called you out of darkness into his wonderful light. The purpose of Snowden Baptist Church... The purpose of any local church is determined in this place of scripture. We have been created by God so that we would declare his praises. And I think Peter is pulling this straight out of Isaiah 43, 21, where God said, Yahweh said, that he forms his people that they might declare his praise. Now we need to land on this. See, many people have this idea of church that it's all about personal well-being and being personally satisfied, which it is. But that's not the primary purpose of Christ's church. Other people conclude that church's primary goal should be to provide quality times of fellowship. We should be doing that. Yes, but that's not the primary goal of the church. According to 1 Peter 2.9, the primary goal, folks, we need to land on this, see it, digest it in our bones. The primary goal that we should be on about as his church is declaring God's praise. Bringing glory to God in word and deed. Magnifying God. Speaking about the mighty acts of God to our neighbors. That we may declare the praises of him, notice, who called us powerfully and effectively is his call. Who called us out of darkness into his wonderful light. Has God moved you? Has God moved you from the sphere of darkness and blindness and unbelief to a new sphere of glorious, life-giving light. 
Has God done a Genesis 1 in your life? Let there be light. And there was light. Has God moved you, like Israel, from dark Egypt to his glorious presence at Sinai? Has Jesus called you, like he did Lazarus, from a a dark, deathly tomb to resurrection life? Do you resonate with Charles Wesley in this great hymn that he wrote? Long my imprisoned spirit lay, fast bound in sin and nature's night. Thine eye diffused a quickening ray. I woke, the dungeon flamed with light. My chains fell off, my heart was free. I rose, went forth, and followed thee. People who have been brought from darkness to his wonderful light will be people who can't help declaring his praise. Like Israel in Psalm 78, recalling as they do through that whole psalm, mighty divine deed after mighty divine deed, the church's purpose is to declare his praises to a dark, lost world will we do it this week let's get creative in how this happens around snotus i'm excited i'm excited well in our last verse verse 10 we've got to move on peter continues now with the cavalcade of old testament quotes he goes now to hosea 2 23 peter says to us he says to the church once you were not a people did you know that <laughs> once you were not a people but now you are The people of God, once you had not received mercy, but now you have received mercy. He's quoting Hosea 2.23 there. In the original context of Hosea 2, God had lost faith, as it were, in his sinful, wicked people, Israel. He'd gone so far in that chapter to declare them no longer his people. To God... Israel, because of her wickedness and disobedience, had become like the Gentiles, not his people. But you see, in astounding mercy, God declared his willingness to draw Israel back and call them his people once more. Peter's logic in quoting Hosea 2.23 seems to be this. That if God showed mercy to wicked Israel who had become like Gentiles to him, if God drew them back and called them his people once again, then there was room for more Gentiles. Blood Gentiles, like most of us in this room. Racial Gentiles. To be drawn into God's family. The church, which includes so many Racial Gentiles was once not a people in God's economy, but now we are the people of God together with believing Jews. Once we had not received mercy, but now we have. Oh, friends, there is so much grist for the mill in this passage that we've just walked through concerning the identity and the nature and the glory of the church of Jesus Christ. How do we understand ourselves? 
We are God's new temple, the place of his presence on earth. We serve a Savior who is the rejected stone. Therefore, the rejection we face in this world should not surprise us. We are a holy priesthood, a royal priesthood. We, are, we as the church are a chosen people, a holy nation. We have been shown the mercy of God when none of us deserved it. We are a people belonging to God, sent as ambassadors of the king of the universe to declare his praises throughout the world. Wow, what a vision of church. My prayer and my hope is, as we close, that if we have been quick to criticize the church, that we would be quick to recall God's estimation of the church as given in this passage, and that we would repent, humble ourselves, and love the people of the church despite their, my, visible shortcomings. Love the community as it is, this grand, amazing temple of God. Let's pray. Our Father in heaven, blessed be your name. Thank you for perhaps rocking our boats this morning a little bit, challenging us. Lord, your word does that. It interprets us before we interpret it. Thank you for this glorious and grand vision of the church that you give us in this section of 1 Peter. And help us, Lord, by your Holy Spirit as a community to apply this word to our life at Snowden Baptist. We pray in Jesus' name and because of him. Amen.